Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome back to the Writers Panel. And hey, Happy New Year. It's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. As you know, I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had almost a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows that interest you. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is it. Jerry Duggan's back. I did it. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Thanks for coming back. Thank uh, you for having me back. Listen, mm. we need to talk about everything that's going on with you. <sighs> Where to begin? Let's begin with this new book you have coming out. Okay. It's called Analog. It's called Analog. It's, when is it released? It's uh, out the first week of April. So uh, okay. if you're hearing uh, my voice and this sounds interesting to you, uh, let your retailer know. It'll be available digitally. Um, it's going to pr- uh, press very soon. Awesome. It's a really good book. Um, and it's, I think for people who know and love your work from Deadpool, uh, primarily, um, they're really going to dig this, which is still your voice, but is just a whole new, very, like, it feels like a story that you really want to tell. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been wrenching on this since 2015. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you dug it. Uh, you yeah. know, I wasn't sure, uh, you know, who it was necessarily going to be for other than <laughs> myself. Um, but uh, Declan Shalvey introduced me to uh, David O'Sullivan, mm-hmm. an, a young Irish artist, and neither of us could believe that he hadn't been published yet. Wow. And so he and I started working on this uh before the election, we were like he had his first issue in 2015, and then, and then in, after the election, I was like, David, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm going to have to do like a little bit of rewriting about some of this stuff. It's a world uh, that um, a post um, mass doxing uh, that uh, you know what happens to secrets when the internet isn't. Uh, to be trusted anymore and so um, men and women with briefcases and guns come back and they're you know it's like Al Capone's bookkeeper moving your secrets <laughs> for a price and so you know selfishly I got rid of cell phones you know for my story and so that, that I thought that was very like, clever <laughs> yeah I was like alright let's let's tell a future noir with no cell phones and uh, boy you know that helps but I'm glad I'm glad you dug it uh, Jordi, I, Jordi Belair colored it yeah I, I mean it's beautiful the art is great the color is great and the story is really compelling um it does feel really current very present uh and i'm curious about how that initial story changed in the year uh year and a half well um you know i had to go back and sort of figure out uh, i had a longer sort of game to play in a flashback and so then i was like you know what this just better feel like this is a much more immediate sort of end here because it was all of a sudden the stuff that was in the you know current day of the story it takes place in 2024 is going to be a lot more interesting than like how we got to that world Mm -hmm. and so luckily david hadn't drawn any of it yet so uh, i was able to pivot um but you know look it's a world i think that's going to happen you know it's happening in drips and drabs and this is sort of when the pipes burst and uh, Jack McGinnis, our, our character, our you know uh, protagonist, is is a guy that had a little something to do with the mass doxing, and I think he did it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he caused a, a lot of uh, grief out there, but he also, uh, you know, if he, he was trying to save a um, 
save us from a uh, hostile foreign power, he probably did the right thing. <laughs> it's a little bit of wish fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really sense. is. And you know what? It's it sincerely, some days I wake up and I wrench on it and I, it feels like, oh my gosh, what a nightmare. And then other days I wake up and I'm like, this is such a dream. And so it's fun to, you know, I, I don't mean to sort of vacillate between the two, but really just depending on the mood and what's going on and what I'm writing. Yeah, you know, a world without an internet, like, boy, that feels good. Or <laughs> without an unreliable uh, internet. It's still yeah. a porn delivery v- device, right, even in 2024. Yeah. <laughs> I love, you know, the, the core of the internet is still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's not forgotten its main gig. Right. Yeah. Um, tell me about, so this is out through Image. Image, yeah. Um, did you have to pitch the book? How, how did that kind of come together? Yeah, I, um, you know, I was very lucky years ago, um, they they were the first people to say yes to me. Um, I, so I had two image comics through them and, and Eric, uh, Stevenson over there uh, always just said, Hey, if you have anything else, I'd love to do it. We all, everybody has to sort of do the same thing. If you guys are making comics or you want to make comics, it's just about having, um, finished art with story, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and being able to, to, to pitch your story and then s- to be able to show image sequentials. Uh, you know, I suppose it might be different if you were like, oh, I I have nude pictures of Alex Ross and he's agreed to do my book. He probably doesn't need to see sequentials, but but they really do say they want to see what the book looks like mm-hmm. and who could blame them. So, uh, yeah, er- Eric said yes to publishing it and... Uh, you know we're we're done we're we're almost on the first trade so oh, right. we'll have before the first issues out we'll be basically wrapping up so we'll, we should be able to run pretty consistently good i know that's always the big concern that's the really the problem yeah the, <laughs> well it's a problem in the industry right it is yeah i mean you know we're left with the uh, with the idea of do we be late and good or do we be on time and it got made you know you could sort of go we did it <laughs> but it seems like you got far enough ahead we did and, yeah uh, the um and and you know what david is so fast he's been ch- i actually owe him a script right now so he's um he's challenging me to 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 keep uh, my trains running on that's time. great what is what are your habits how are you keeping ahead and like how much story are you thinking about like things are so uncertain in the industry right <laughs> Things are uncertain uh, in the industry. Um, you know, on the Marvel side, I've been very lucky to have consistent mm-hmm. assignments and and have an audience. Um, you know, uh, and I never took that for for granted. Uh, you know, Deadpool ran uh, much longer than I thought it was going to run. <laughs> yeah, and how I'm many issues grateful. all told? One hundred and twenty-five. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's like really consistent crazy. and consistently good, I, and like so building lucky. on it. And it, it was a deep, good run. I'm so lucky in collaborating from the beginning with Posehn and Tony Moore and, mm-hmm. and Jordan D. White, um, who I know you've worked with, great mm-hmm. editor, Absolutely. all the way through to the end now to be able to finish with Koblish and Lolly and Mike Hawthorne and to tell the story that we wanted to is just was so cool. And actually, you, your annual, <laughs> no, s- sincerely helped build up Madcap as a, Madcap as a really uh, interesting villain That's that really we, nice. we were able to make really good use of. Yeah, back you did end. cool stuff with that. So I was, I was grateful for for all of it, oh, but thanks. but on the you know on the other side, you're, we're trying to make our own comics on our own time between those, and mm-hmm. so you can get off your schedule really easily uh, on when you're self publishing. Yeah. So how are you keeping on top of it? How how fast do you write? Uh, I'm not a script a day guy. I basically can do um, you know when I'm really redlining myself, I can do about two scripts a week. Yeah. 
I think uh, that's reasonable. And, and that's the mo- like, and that that I don't, I can't do that every week. No. But I can go back and look at my Google Calendar when I turn in a <laughs> script. I see where it was, so like I can tell like when. Funny. Yeah. So, <laughs> but but I am, and you may want to try this on your creator on stuff. I'm working with an editor on another creator own book, so it's an, I haven't done that freelance editor. Uh, Will Dennis is helping mm-hmm. uh, me with a second image project uh, that I'm doing with John McRae. Great. Um, and so fun. it's been so nice to be able to go, oh, man, I got to send this note. Where are those colors? And have the email already be there Absolutely. is great because I am I can barely do the writing job, let alone all the other things yeah. that you have to do when, when you're self-publishing comics. It is, And it's a different muscle, and it's asking a lot to sort of shift gears and do that stuff. Totally. And it's, it, you know, it, it, it also is just nice to have that um, person that will be there to sort of, not be the heavy, but to you know keep the trains running on time. Sometimes that's an uncomfortable conversation, or or, or you know, uh, where is the uh, where is the work is a question that you kind of don't want to have as a creative. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, and then as far as story <clears throat> um, for analog, yeah. Uh, for example, like how how far ahead are you thinking? I would like to get to three trades. So I have three, and and the really cool thing about analog is it's it's have gun will travel, mm-hmm. so we'll get to see the world, mm-hmm. and so I know sort of what happens in Phoenix, and I know what happens when we get to San Francisco, which is a watch, still a much more wired place. And I mean, then of all crazy things, my son gave me a great idea for the book. <laughs> You know, because I was talking, I was like, you know, it may be hard to fly if you didn't want to be on anyone's radar. And he goes, well, you could go on one of those container ships. And I was like, oh, yeah. That's I was really like, cool. you really could. <laughs> so I sort of, if I'm not sharing credit on that issue with him, I'm certainly, like, giving him a special thanks, uh, which which is neat. But, the, you know, I, I know where the story goes, and you... Uh, plan different sort of ways to get there depending on the level of success you have. So mm-hmm. if we open big, you go, oh my goodness, that's the Cadillac version of going, I'm going to get three or four trades. Mm-hmm. And then if we sort of have a rougher opening, we go, okay, here's the plan. I won't take any money on the floppy issues right. at, or, and we'll just divert all the cash to the artist and go, let's get to two trades and that'll that'll be a story. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, that's the cool thing about sort of writing back some of the stuff like do you ever do that do you write backwards from the yeah so writing backwards from the end and sort of knowing you know depending on how depending on business affairs really when you sort of begin to put that into the story so that's that's what we're doing on the image are you planting stuff in this first arc for a third or fourth arc you know, just not worrying I about whether you get there. So much world building to do yeah, in the first true. issue that, like, um, you know, by the time we get to issue three or four, I would say you're going to meet some characters. Uh, there's a woman named Aunt Sam who's trying to like reboot the NSA by putting, cop, you know, copier rooms, secret copier rooms all around the the world, um, in transportation hubs. And then, <clears throat> you know, there's stuff that I couldn't have predicted ever really even thinking about. Like when I started this, I wasn't. Like, no one was talking about ice, mm-hmm. you know, and in the analog world, I think you're going to find that there's an overlap between uh, the people, you know, that would be trying to pay, you know, uh, that, that would offer a service to uh, get people away from ice and the and the paper jockeys, the Funny. people. So it, it's cool. In in at the end of the first trade, you'll see like uh, speakeasies are back in big city, cities, and they're not all. It's not 
it's not like Casablanca, but it kind of you sure. know there there is that <laughs> element to it now. As I sort of watch what's happening uh, in in America now, That's interesting. We're trying to vault over the political climate, mm-hmm. but we're sort of inheriting and we're playing with the the especially the social aspects of what came yeah. with it. Well, and it feels like you don't need to be yeah. bogged down in, you know, political backstory. No, nobody, right? It's I like, think there's plenty, like, we get it, we get it yeah. enough in the real world, yes. but we also get enough in the story where you can sort of fill in the gaps on your own. Totally. Which is always preferable, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, to a lot of exposition. Let me ask sort of like a bigger question about the comics industry. Sure. Uh, and it's something I've been thinking about. Are the days of the 100-issue run gone? <laughs> They might be. Um, you know, we talked for a long time um, just amongst ourselves in the pubs, like at, at shows about sort of running a more seasonal model. And mm-hmm. then you've started to, I've started to hear that more on the other side, on the business side, coming from the companies. You know, I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it all depends on what the model is. I really admire what DC is doing with Mr. Miracle, where when mm-hmm. Mitch needs to stop down, look, the book takes a break for a month and then returns and you know it really just speaks to people building for the trade for the collection mm-hmm. and i've even now been talking to retailers who would much rather sell the collection than the floppy everyone sort of really? knows that they have to support the floppy to get to that yeah but it doesn't feel like retailers are necessarily um betting heavily on floppies. Hmm. I, I could be wrong. Which you know, makes sense. Makes sense. But I think also customers are are going to be wary about picking up a $10 book versus a $3 book or $4 totally. book. Totally. And speaking of price points, too, we're talking about an image in a in an ongoing situation trying to keep the first trade you know we lose a little bit of cash on it but making it a 999 book yeah i've heard that four a or lot. five issues and then go oh you got your audience hooked well the second one is just priced more appropriately right. it's not like we're gouging but like that one goes to right. like 14.99 but you can sample it like you can $10 sample it 10 bucks sample. see what you like there's yeah. a lot of good stuff out there and and then make you know make your decision i went to comics pro last week have mm-hmm. you ever heard of that no, it's a um, a private retailer. Um, not a private. It's a it's a retailer organization. Okay, and it's uh, not everyone's in it. You pay into it, and then there's like a boondoggle where everyone will go to like one city <laughs> twice a year, once a year. It was kind of fascinating because that you know getting to talk to comics retailers and you know we really comics is still very much a 20th century business. We have to really sell it three times in yeah. the end: once to the distributor, Diamond twice to the retailer and then the third time to the fan. And, you know, even though we're selling directly to the fans, boy, that is like, you know, it's a hurdle. (laughs) It's it's a hurdle race. Uh, So it was interesting to just talk to them to hear what they want. And, you know, to a certain extent, they they don't really speak with one clear voice. They have different clients, different uh, comic shops in different cities. Um, I've always felt very lucky here in L.A. Mm -hmm. to have a number of great shops here. Um, but but yeah, it's the comics business is a funny business. You know, we we uh, want to be very forward facing, but we're we're stuck in that like twentieth um, century. Yeah, model. I mean, look, we're still basically making newspapers every yeah, week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, who's still in publishing? Right, we're like the Omega Publishers. <laughs> what you know, are we we're doing? Like, it's Highlander. <laughs> so, yeah, why, um, why are we doing this? All right, so the book is analog. It's out analog, in April. Yeah. Uh, people should check it out. Uh, tell again, tell your tell your local store that you want to uh, get this book. And I, also get it uh, digital. 
right? Yeah, you can buy it digitally, uh, ironically. The, yeah. the analog is the and analog the, comics are... And those yeah. digitals are fun to read. Uh, I've moved digital to have a you? certain extent. I, I yeah, pretty just much to have save to. space, because yeah. I, I don't want to like you know be one of those guys that is crushed to death under a mountain of his own <laughs> exactly. periodicals. Exactly. Um, let's just wrap up now by asking you what you are reading in comics these days. What's really getting you excited or inspired? Uh, I'm really liking um, the stuff that I'm reading from Image has been fantastic. There's um, so many good there's comics. There's so right now. many good comics right now. It's like the golden age <laughs> of just wonderful comics. Yeah, so, a lot of creators telling stories they want to tell. They want to tell, and it, it, it clearly shows. And then, look, I'm a little ahead on my reading at Marvel, mm -hmm. but the stuff that is coming out. Uh, you know, the uh, Jason and Ed on Avengers sure. is going to be great. Awesome. Uh, Nick and Otley, I've read ahead on Spider-Man. Nice. And That's so, a great choice to Sincerely, take over yeah, just a what a, you know, nobody really uh, would have expected that. And mm -hmm. boy, does it look great. And, awesome. and, you know, I'm privy to being in the room there and hearing where all those stories go. Awesome. And I really, like, I, I know that that's going to really set a fire uh, uh, under comics fans. Good. I know it's going to be great. So. That's great. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for being here, Jerry. Thank and good luck much. with the book. I appreciate it. The last batch of recordings from last year's ATX Television Festival, the best television festival in Austin or anywhere. Uh, it really is fun. If you guys haven't been to ATX, what's stopping you? Uh, this year it is June 7th through 10th uh, in Austin. You can go to atxfestival.com to get badges. Uh, they've already announced a whole bunch of awesome things for this year's lineup, including um, a whole thing, a whole conversation with Freeform about the sort of shows they're doing and uh, millennial programming. Uh, they got folks from Queen Sugar coming. They've got folks from Drunk History doing an interactive panel. Uh, the new uh, audience network, Condor, based on uh, Three Days of the Condor, uh, there's a TV show. And that's going to be there. Uh, American Woman, a whole bunch of really cool things. So that's the stuff that's already announced. There's even more great stuff coming. Once again, it is June 7th through 10th in Austin, uh, atxfestival.com to get badges, which do it. this uh, panel, we have Sarah Rotman from the LA Times. Wow, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. This is one of my favorite genres on television, the family drama. And we have a powerhouse panel of people here today, starting with two people who know a little something about families. The Salinger family you might be familiar with, the Soprano family you might be familiar with, and currently the Reagan family of Blue Bloods. Please welcome Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green. The... <laughs> For the Lawson family of royal pains, Mr. Michael Rauch. Paul Garns, who uh, is currently helping oversee the Bordelon family on Queen Sugar, please join us. And 
I know we have some Everwood fans in the house. <laughs> Anna Fricky, who helped with the Abbots and the Harpers and the Browns. Please join us. And David Hudgens knows a little about family, parenthood, yeah. Friday Night Lights, Everwood, please. The Taylors, the Regans, the Saracens. Come have a seat. Uh, to start with, um, I want to ask for each of you, what was the gold standard family drama that you grew up watching that you loved that made you want to be part of this world? There are so many to choose from. <laughs> Um, I didn't watch television. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. But now you make great Gold, television. That's Goldberg, what I'm You know, uh, Leonard Goldberg's family was pretty, uh, yeah. and yes. we worked with Leonard, and he was pretty good. He was very proud of that. Except that I saw that way later, see. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. It can still be your gold standard, and Santa Thompson watches <laughs> over us all. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Garns? Well, wow, I have never thought that question. Yeah, that's um, a good question. It's and it doesn't question. have to be one you watched growing up. What's one you love? Oh, there are a ton of shows I love. <laughs> um, you know, there are shows for people on this panel even. Um, you know, I thought Brother and Sister was a yeah. phenomenal series. I was just captivated with it the whole, the whole time. Um, I also, um, you know, I loved... Um, God, that's a that's a good question. Right. I'm gonna put more let it marinate. Into that. Let yeah. it marinate. Yeah. Um, I would say definitely when I was a kid, Family Ties was a big one for me. And then uh, later in college, I was really obsessed with Party of Five, which is more wow. of an unconventional yeah. family drama. <laughs> um, but that, you know, I was in college, and that, that was right when I was deciding what I wanted to do. And I moved out to LA, and that's what really made me want to be a writer because I wanted to yeah. write that sort of. So you have Mitchell and Robinson thing partially for that. <laughs> uh, growing up, I watched a show called Eight Is Enough, um, and really enjoyed it. I don't, I can't speak to the quality of it, but it's a great show. I had a giant crush on one of the actresses and wrote her a fan letter, and she sent me like multiple signed headshots. Um, and so it was just, it was, and she was in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and I like waved at her, and I was sure she looked at me, like we had, I was, you know, whatever, eight or nine, but I was sure we had a moment. I don't know her name now, but so, uh, and then Is I- Is it Susan? No, it was, I think it started with a D, I want to say, like, the actress. I'll find it, I'll have her. But uh, as a non-kind of messed up child, um, Six Feet Under was a family show that I really loved, mm-hmm. and I loved- uh, how, you know, there was this great contrast between the love and the uh, the complications of that family, and it really it had an impact on me. Uh, family, for me, really. And I want to make sure, that was the show where Meredith Baxter Burney lived in the back house, right? Yeah, she was my first crush. Uh, and, but then it was 30-something. I, re- I, remember, I remember really lo- loving that show growing up. And as far as eight is enough goes, any show that employs Betty Buckley is a good show. Absolutely. So we're you saying. Know, Robin worked on a show called uh, You're in the Life. You're in the Life. That well, I worked on that show, though. It was though. short-lived, but it was. Yeah, and I didn't know that, that we could do sitcoms, Are we, oh. that we consider those family shows yeah, as show. well, because I, I don't think of them that, as family shows for some reason. I think of them as sitcoms. And then it would have to be All in the Family. Which was really groundbreaking and and interested me in television, I think, for the first time. But I think that was like the late 60s or something, or the early 70s. Yeah. 
So, so you know, again, it was hard to put it around just family drama because I just never thought of them like that right. at the time. Um, but as a, that was a single, my, my, a product of a single parent. And so The Courtship of Eddie's Father was a show that I was like, oh, as yeah. a child, obsessed with. Uh, just because it was the only time I had seen like a single parent uh, in that one hour, you know, kind of format. And that's what was, what was the theme song to that? Do you remember it? People, let me tell say, you about yeah, that's my what it was. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we really love it. <laughs> Thank you. And you bring up a good question, though, because as I was starting to make a list, and there are so many fantastic shows, sitcoms, and hour-long shows. That how do you define a family drama, right? Because I mean, something like Game of Thrones is all about families, but do we consider that a family drama? <laughs> is Downton Abbey a family drama, even though it centers on a family? Yeah. I mean, I think in most of your cases, a lot of the shows that we're talking about, I mean, even Blue Bloods, it's about a family, but it's also about the police. Definitely. So, I mean, how do you define that? Do you feel comfortable being defined in the family drama category? That's all we do, pretty much, I think through you know time <laughs> except maybe for northern exposure that really wasn't family no. you want to grab this one? Well, no the blue bloods you have the family we have the cops because we couldn't get the show in there without the cops to do the family stuff i mean okay. <laughs> speaking of family no. drama no we have, and nobody's talking about the sopranos either which is the ultimately you know it's it's got everything but um we, we heard the pitch for Blue Bloods. It was Leonard Goldberg's idea. And I think he, he made Family, that original great show. He was part of that somehow. But we were standing in our living room, and he, he just told us about that. He pitched it to us as a family show, but they're cops. And we were like, oh, we know how to do that. So then, of course, we had to research how to do cops. So then we had to, like, watch The Wire and stuff. <laughs> Well, that's good research. That's good homework to have to do. That kind of stuff. But the the basis of it was family, because that's where we feel most in, engaged, I suppose. And you all have a lot of people to service on different shows throughout the years. Um, when I think of Everwood, I mean, that's a lot of different families. Like, that was a lot of people to service. You have multi-generations on Blue Bloods. You have a lot of siblings. When you are coming up with the concept or you're writing for these shows... How do you figure out how to service everybody and also tell a larger story? Oh, you're really bringing the questions today. We don't know. I think, um, and I'd be, you know, I, Parenthood, for example, was a, a classic family drama. In terms of servicing all the characters, I always loved that. I felt it was a bit of a crutch in a way because you would sit there and go, okay, what's the Christina story this week? What's the Max story? What's the, you know, the other story? And at the end of the day, you know, if you've done your work well at the beginning of the season, you've arced out where you're trying to get. And so servicing all those individuals in a family setting, I feel like is actually the strength of that kind of a show. That's right. And, and they're also those those characters all intrinsically connected. So you know you almost by servicing one character you enrich another character, uh, and you kind of build off of those relationships. Like in Queen Sugar, it's about siblings and the complexity of those relationships, and sometimes that's functional and sometimes that's dysfunctional. Um, but that dysfunction kind of reads into kind of a broader understanding of who those characters are at a, as a group. Well, I mean, you, could you have a show about a happy family? <laughs> Would that even work? <laughs> I was just going to say that on, on Royal Pains, it was a medical procedural. Um, we had to have a medical A story, usually a medical B story. But what drove the storytelling and the episodic themes was always the family stories. And it was always about, you know, that's where we started. 
and we decided where we'd want to take that story that week with which characters, whether it was the brothers, whether it was Henry Winkler as the dad, or, you know, an in-law, and then we would fashion the medical stories around that so that there was an organic sense of where they were coming from and all the stories would overlap. So it really became, unexpectedly, our story engine, and I think it's what the audience connected to. Um, You know, usually it was a very happy show and a very buoyant show, so although there were complications, nothing got too too depressing. Um, but it really is, was the glue that I think kept the show together throughout the run. And you bring up an interesting point for yourself and for Mitchell and Robin. When you have a procedural aspect to it and family is the thing that you know, it, does that go from being both helpful and a hindrance? Like sometimes you just want to focus on Sunday dinner. Sometimes you just want to focus on the brothers. But you have to come up with this other thing to go along with I, it. The case I, th- of the I think that pure family dramas that are successful are rare. I, I can't think of that many of them. I mean, Year in the Life was a one... Do you remember that show, anybody? It was on for one year and it was re- replaced by Tattinger's. <laughs> you know, uh, which was a... Uh, Is it a restaurant show? Is that yes. What, oh, yeah. You know, he was ordering fish and he solves a murder. You know, yeah. he sees a murder. <laughs> so, I love that episode. And it was a sure thing. So they And we had then a 23, you know, share or something, exactly. some phenomenal share. But now, it, you know, it's, it would be great. But anyway, so... But, but the pure family show, I think, is hard to do. So when Blue Bloods was pitched to us that way, we thought, oh, we can sell this. They'll make this. Because it, it gives you that, that other engine... Um, you know, the plots every week, <laughs> that sort of thing. But that said, like on a, a, a cast as big as Blue Bloods, it's it's hard to f- service all the characters, and you're tr- you. It's sometimes you they don't you don't do it enough, and sometimes it, and the cast gets you know they want more time, but you do the best you can. Yeah, I actually wanted more characters, but Leonard said no. <laughs> and Paul brings up a good point that in a family show, regardless of whether it's procedural or not. Every time somebody does something, it impacts another character in a way that a family of choice type show wouldn't because eventually that's going to come home to roost. So I'm curious, because you all come from families, <laughs> I'm imagining <laughs> that you have mined things from your own lives from your shows. Are, are there any stories that have come from your living rooms that have come to our living rooms on the television? Everybody's scared. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that. I'll I'll jump in with this is not actually my family um, but it's a family it's a family I grew up all the stuff from my family is I think less textual and much more subtextual which are the nuanced dynamics the way you connect or you don't connect the actual stories and this I'm now saying Henry Winkler again I'm not name dropping Um, but we you know we had all of these different people to play the father after season one and the father had to be this ne'er-do-well, this guy who basically abandoned his sons, who did it for money, who's, who left his wife when she was sick with cancer. And we had a list of all these tough guys to do it. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the network called and said, what do you think about Henry Winkler? And, you know, it was this weird, like, Henry Winkler? Like, the nicest guy. And the first scene we see him, one of the sons punches him in the face. So it was like, first of all, I don't think Henry Winkler can do it. And second of all, if we introduce him in a show and he gets punched in the face, half of America will hate us for that. Um, so we went and we sat, Andrew Lanceschi, who created the show, was a great guy. We went and we sat down and had breakfast with Henry. And Henry knew more about the show than we did. Um, he was quoting scenes from like the second episode in La- It was amazing. Um, and, uh, and I'm now going to get back to your question. So we're trying to figure out how do we make this guy 
who's such a eminently likable human being who has a, a television history legacy as cool and sweet um, into this person does these bad things. And my best friend growing up, his dad was the father. He was brilliant and funny and smart and charming and would take like 10 kids skiing for the weekend by himself, would take us to Yankee games, would tell us at sleepovers stories to where I fell asleep. He was the best guy. And in high school, he became a cocaine addict and he like ruined the family and lost the family home and the country home and all these things. But even while that was happening, he was still this charming, lovable guy. And so it was this very, as a child, a very complicated situation of, I can't quite figure out, am I supposed to love him or am I supposed to hate him? And you know, the idea of good and evil existing in all of us, it really was personified in this guy. And so I brought him in, not physically, but you know, told the room about this guy as we were breaking Eddie Lawson, who was Henry's character. And it really, I think for me at least, helped crystallize how to have someone be both likable and funny and charming and at the same time have done really dastardly things. To, to your question, just real quickly, I, I, it, it's, here, here's, what it, here's what it felt like for me. On Everwood, we, we had a medical story each episode that we would have to break, and then you had the family. On Friday Night Lights, we had the drive of the football season, what was happening with the football team. Then you had the family. On Parenthood, we just had the family. And it was hard. It was, it, I mean, it made it hard. So I think, a, you know, good, like, it's to exactly what you said earlier. A family drama that exists solely with family drama stories is really rare because they're really hard to do. So how it's, you guys, I'm sorry. it's easier to have an act break when someone's going to die. You know, it's hard to have an act break when it's like, what do you mean I'm grounded? It's, 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 it's a different animal. So definitely writing the family. I think all of us care more about, you know, the characters and the emotions and the genre. And like, I love to write a family dinner like no one's business, but my pilots never get made. But, but you know, it is easier to structure things around a genre or a procedural for sure. And even Six Feet Under, there were morticians. Right. I mean, it was a thing, but you were going to say, Michael. I was going to ask David, so because I... I did this on a show that last one three episodes where we didn't have a, a procedural as an A story. So when you guys uh, and Parenthood were going to the writer's room, were you finding A story just purely character-based? How would you approach it as a way to efficiently, not have to spend too much time breaking an episode, to come up with your A stories? It was all, um, Kadams was very good about at the beginning of the year arcing and saying, what are the stories we're going to tell with each character? For example, the season that we did Christina's Breast Cancer, we knew we were going to get eight, eight episodes out of that, at a minimum. Um, we had Max Braverman, who was on the spectrum, had autism. That was a bit of an engine, because you always knew that you had a story with Max trying to trying to figure out his life. But really, I, honestly, and I remember there was a time at the end of Friday Night Lights, when I first started, I was doing both shows, and the difference between the two rooms was palpable, because you'd get the parent and be like, all right, so, it's like you just said, so um, we have an argument, we make up, we cry, end of episode. Like, you could do that each week. You <laughs> but, know? It was, but it was gripping, and what I love about Kadem's shows, and, and I'm a huge fan, is that there kind of is no act break. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, go to commercial, whatever. But I never care, and I... I found those shows so gripping, and I was weeping every week. So, so you pulled it That's off. That's the genius of This Is Us, I think. I mean, This Is Us, it just, it, God, I wish I'd had that idea. I mean, so yeah, smart, know. you know, the way they did that and the reveal. And, but, at, at the, you know, a lot of it, and I, and I said this before, I think a lot of it in family drama is wish fulfillment. Hopefully, people want to be with that family, you know, for the good and also with the bad. So they want to see, they want to see them work their shit out so maybe they don't have to do yeah. it in their, in their own personal Lives. And I was going to ask you that. I mean, this is us being sort of, I mean, a real breakthrough in a time when 
we have a lot of the family of choice type shows. And I'm always curious when family dramas do work, what people are resonating with. And I'm thinking it's partly that. But why in this moment are we drawn back to a family story? But unlike most of you, they have a pretty small family. <laughs> but I mean, it is almost pure family drama. So I'm curious what you guys think is the draw for that. I'm guessing it's part of what David said. Of, of This Is Us? Of just people responding to family shows that are pure family shows. I just want to address something, and maybe this tangentially will be part of the question. That's okay. But, um, you like. When you mention a family dinner, we really struggled in Blue Bloods with uh, the, the cop stuff, but we wrote a nine-page family dinner. <laughs> And it was like automatic writing because, and, and also, we, but nobody ever touched it. It was like a miracle, you know what I mean? So um, I don't, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. But I do think that people really liked the, I think they, people in the country really do like the show, you know. But, the um, number one show on Friday nights. I mean, and I think well, that those, those, those Sunday dinners are the things that people Yes, and I think that's what people, and I think it is a kind of wish fulfillment that it's many generations sitting there and discussing issues and having different opinions, and it's nourishing in that way. So it's, it's a healthy, we wanted to, what's that? Tell a story about crying. Well, that's a feeling. different, that's a different well, subject. Feeling. What's okay. feeling? You know, we, we went on Friday night, and the network really, was on, they weren't very supportive of the show. And the network executive at the time said, first of all, they said you can't get more than 5 million viewers on Friday night. And we got um, 10 or 11 or, you know. But so, and also the guy said, and he's no longer there, but he said, and, and it, it wasn't you are. There was a scene, and it was really a very emotional scene. And the guy said, you got to get rid of it. Yeah, he said, nobody wants to cry on Friday night. Well, I want to cry all the time, you know. I love... <laughs> I and love to feel yeah, stuff, you know. You I like that's what it's all about, isn't? And that's partially what it's about. We we just watched Northern Exposure, and you know, they showed an episode on our, on our panel, and you sit there with a smile on your face the whole time. You're not exactly fe you're feeling, but you're not crying. It's it, it's very interesting that difference, uh, and I'm not sure what to make of it, but but uh, one is melodramatic, I think Josh would say, and David Chase too, certainly. Uh, would, would steer away from any kind of any form of feeling, but, so uh, there's different types, I suppose, that we're going. But dinner for. is key at, at every in every show, and I feel like people have dinner on TV more than they, together more than they ever do in actual real life. Like, do any of you have you dinner so? every Sunday so? night with your whole extended family? Su Sunday, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God, maybe I'm crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Families on Sunday night, all like your grandfather. Because, because I want to mind the the dinner for an episode. I'm just I'm just blatantly using my family for for, for my own domain. But it still is fantasy world. I mean, who actually goes over and knocks on somebody's door to have a conversation? That happens in TV all the time. But you have to do that for dramatic purposes, I guess. Yeah. And when you're working with a family too, and on all of your shows, everybody will have up moments, everybody will have down moments, but is one of the constrictions of working with a family is that nobody could ever be a true villain because they still need to be part of the family? I don't know, that's tough. This is, I mean, this is not a show that I worked on, so I can't speak to it, but I look at a show like Bloodline, which I think is a great family drama, and, you know, there's a real black sheep in that family, and, he, you know, you could say he is sort of the villain, but he's very relatable and sympathetic and in many ways the best character on the show. So I think you find, I think that 
on these family dramas as long as whatever the person is doing that's bad is coming from some place, like whatever happened to them in the childhood of, of that family or the family dynamic, they're not necessarily a villain, you know? Yeah, I also think there are, obviously there are different networks and every network has their own signature and their own tone and every show has its own rules. So I love Bloodline. And a Bloodline, if you've watched the season, pretty much anyone can get away with anything. Um, you know, on shows like uh, on Royal Pains, for instance, we had, we realized that there were certain characters who, if someone lied to them, let alone did something terrible, but just lied to them, the audience would write them off entirely. That there was no way to redeem a character who lied to our lead because they so disliked that person. So I think, you know, we learned that and it, and it changed the way, the kind of elasticity of our storytelling of what we could and couldn't do. And we kind of had to follow the rules of our own show. And when we broke them, we would, we would hear about it. And so if there was a TV family that you could be a part of, what family would it be? Bravermans. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in the Sopranos. <laughs> Wait a I actually thought I want to have dinner with I them. I watched when I was a kid. Excellent. Uh, Bonanza, and I would be part of that family because they had horses. You know, right. morally That's a silly answer, but actually, you know, that, that appealed to me. I would go with the Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> because you'd never get older. Yeah, I'd never get old, and it'd just be a fun place to be. You know, life is funny because things happen. But I, I mean, I mean, the Cosby Show. You know, when I, I remember just, I mean, that was the classic at the time, right? Yeah. And um, so I, I remember that very well. And do you have an episode of any of the shows that you have worked on that maybe if it didn't actually mind something from your life that resonated really strongly for you, a storyline that touched you in a way that maybe you weren't even expecting as you were writing or producing it? Oh, I'll go first. Um, we did a story, uh, an episode on Parenthood, where Max got um, essentially hazed or bullied. Um, they peed in his canteen on the school camping trip. And on the way home, he was, got really upset. Well, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. But, um, uh, um, and his mom got out of the front seat and got in the back seat and sat with him. And I had seen my wife do that. And so that's, you know, it's like, you know, it, I just, I, in that moment, and it really worked. Um, because Monica Potter is amazing. But that's an example. Now we're all crying about Parenthood again. <laughs> we, we had a storyline um, on Queen Sugar, and it wasn't just one episode. It was kind of an arc piece, but it crescendoed in an episode where one of our characters is formerly incarcerated, and um, he had custody of, or, or you know, he was back now into his young son's life. Uh, and the whole season, it had kind of been a struggle for him to find um, his balance again, you know, kind of as, as a man, as a father. Um, and there's this really tough moment where uh, his son, Blue, who's five, is wants to go on a field trip. And, you know, he signs the field trip slip. And the teacher sends it back to him and says, hey, you know, this is great, but, you know, you're not his legal guardian. And he has to go and ask his aunt, who's been the legal guardian, um, for you know permission for his son to go on this trip, and it's this really heartfelt moment of him just saying, "Wow, I felt like I you know paid my debt to society, and I feel like I'm still trapped, not being able to even be my my son's father." And it was even when we shot it, it was just like so emotional on set. The camera guys are crying, like it was just a really touching moment. You know, it works when the camera guys are crying. <laughs> They've seen it all. 
I think the uh, wonderful um, father-daughter trip in uh, The Sopranos in college is one of, the, one of the better family things done. I mean, it was one of my favorites. Didn't end so well for that one guy, but well, up until that, great family story. I don't know. Didn't want us to do that. Well, I don't know as we can you right. connect on a personal level to that trip. Well, no, it's a family uh, job. I, I like the father-daughter aspect when we're, they were together. I didn't, you know, I mean, I understand it's The Sopranos. Well, and that brings up another question. You have siblings, you have parent-child, you have grandparents, on, in your case, on Blue Bloods. Is there um, a, a relationship, a family relationship, that is easier or harder to write, depending on how they relate to one another? Our grandparents and are, that are easier or harder to write? Are grandparents and grandchildren easier than parents and children? Or sisters? No. Or... It's all hard. No. I mean, when, when we first started, I guess Mitch and I started writing together Northern Exposure, and somebody was like convinced that he would write the men, and I would write the women. And it, it's, it isn't like that. That you, you, you know, the fun of it, I suppose, is transporting yourself into the, the bodies of different characters, um, and so that's the fun of it. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't find that. Do you that it's harder to write some relationships than others? No, because I think also when you end up writing whatever that storyline is, you're not necessarily thinking. Maybe it is, you know, grandparent, grandchild, but in your mind, it's coming from something that you've connected to from your brother-sister place or something. It's really just, I think, the family dynamic in general. It's whatever your relationship, emotional experiences, I think, that you kind of can fit into that particular mold. I I love the grandparents' um, stories. And, and, you know, in my experience, part of it is just because of the actors. I mean, there's a moment in Parenthood um, where, where Mae Whitman's character had gotten in an accident and her grandfather takes her to the auto salvage yard to see the car and he says to her, I dreamed this family. Don't mess it up. By the way, he ad-libbed that line. Craig T. Nelson did. And in that moment, I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's the show. So, but, so grandparents, I think, are really, um, I think they're really fun to write because they can do all sorts of crazy shit, but they're still your grandparents and you still love them. <laughs> It's good to be a grandparent for that reason, too. (laughs) And speaking of Craig T. Nelson, um, all of you have been blessed with these incredible casts, which obviously weren't necessarily your choices from the beginning. But clearly, when you're talking about a family show, casting is so important. And can you talk a little bit about the cast that you've worked with? I mean, on Blue Bloods, I would believe all of those people were related. Easily. I would believe all those people were related in real life. Like, that's very convincing. But Jamie is so short. They're all so short. And Tom is so tall. We had had to write to it once because, I guess, Bridget is tall. And we cast in the picture a short mother who is dead just to kind of explain Jamie. It's like, but casting is magic. I mean, it's chemistry, and it's it's like a miracle of some sort. And I think that successful shows have this kind of of chemistry between the actors and in the actors themselves. And also in the blue blood, in the blue blood show, the first time the cast really met each other was that dinner scene, and. And we shot it first, so and it looks like they've known each other from, since they were born. But that's just the magic of the casting, which is a, a big part of these family dramas. It, it's got well the writing, but the cast has got to be believable. You know, you you, you got to believe that that's the dad and that's the brother, and I mean it's necessary. Being playing those relationships because it's where we all live. 
you, you also have the opportunity, which is a blessing and a curse. I did a show for the C- a family show for the CW, and we shot the pilot, and the people who were the parents in the pilot, who I thought were the best actors for every reason, it didn't work. And so we recast them. Wow. And um, and reshot the pilot. Wow. With that, yeah, and and in a good way, we all agreed, meaning the studio, and the network, and I, that that we had to find another way for the dynamics of the family to work. But it worked much better once we found those people. You want to name yeah. names? Here? Uh, I <laughs> I do, but I won't. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were there were other issues going on also, but uh, but it is it is such a delicate balance when you're talking about Craig T. Nelson. We had. We had to find someone to play Henry's dad, and we cast Ed Asner. And he, you know, aside from being a TV legend, he is a great guy, but he also, he's just this irascible, you know, and so he would just ad-lib these lines that were funnier than anything we wrote. And the way he delivered, you know, he just didn't give a shit. And, and as an, I mean, he's such a smart man, and he's so, but... And this character, he just did what he wanted to do, and it fit so well for the character that it helped us figure out who Henry's character was in a different way, and then who his sons, who they were in a different way. You know, we were able to all of a sudden trace the lineage when we brought Ed Asner in that, that just gave us more to do with the characters who were younger than him. Yeah, I, I, can I just say real quickly about casting? The two things I will say is, I remember, and Anna, maybe you do too, is um, the first time I went to set and saw Chris Pratt as bright in Everwood, you just knew there was something about this guy. He was so goofy and so lovable. And, you know, just, he was, and now look, you know, now he's a movie star. He's, he's, he's doing okay. He's, yeah, yeah he's, he should be okay. But then the other one is that um, uh, when Friday Night Lights went from pilot to series, uh, I'm sorry, this was in the pilot. I'm, let me back up. They didn't want Kyle Chandler as the coach. <laughs> They wanted, they wanted, you know, a, a big Billy Bob, you know, tobacco chewing, stomping, you know, basically a caricature of a Texas football coach. And even Pete Berg resisted, and then he sat down with Kyle, and he's like, "No, this is how you do it." So imagine that show if it hadn't been Kyle, you know, yeah. it's 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 so it is. It's all about the casting, and and if you get it right, you know, you're lucky. Is that because of the movie, do you think? Is that because they were trying to duplicate what the movie dynamic was from that character? I think, I think that was part of it. And I think they just thought that Kyle was too, you know, he was, he was, it was just, it was not the idea that they had in their head of the typical football coach, which is what made it genius, I thought. Right. God, I'm just getting over that idea. There are many others. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. But I mean, and that's why casting is so important. And then you get on all television shows, you then start writing to the strengths of the actors that you have and start writing for them. And do you also start seeing them interact with each other and start writing to the relationships that yes, they have I in mean, real life? When we were casting Tony's, Tony Soprano's sister, it was between like Annabella Sciorra and Aida Torturo. It, it, they're totally different characters. It would it changed it changed the character to cast Aida, you know, and then made it it made it funny, I guess, <laughs> instead of like truly scary. But um, so in that case, the casting was everything, and and that dictated sort of what happened with her as we went, as we went along, you know, with to- her and Tony, her and Tony mostly. That's who she related to when you say. And then Annabella still got to be on the show, so. I worked out for her, too. (laughs) Got a stake to the face. So, um, and for the rest of you, did you find that as you were watching the actors, you started writing to the things that 
watching them interact. Yeah, I think one of the best parts is when you don't even think that there's a character that has legs like that, and then the, an actor brings something to it that you're like, oh, we can never let this go. Like, this has to be part of this show. Um, yeah, exactly. It's the fun part. It's the part the, the chemistry you can't necessarily see on the page, but when the actor brings it to life, and you're like, oh, wow, these characters are meant to be together. Like, even though we were going to go a different direction, we need to put, you know, this on the priority list. I can't stop talking, so I just have to say one more thing. <laughs> Keep talking. That's why you're here. As a, as a writer, when you're in casting as a producer, um, and you're sitting in that room, and somebody comes in and reads your stuff, and it's horrible, and you think, I, I stink, you know? And then the right person comes in and does it, and you're brilliant. And it really is that, that's what I mean, that's part of the magic, is that they make, they make your writing live. Yeah, I, I would say the right person or anyone with a British accent. Because <laughs> the show I'm so doing true. now, like three of the four lead actors are British, and every word they say is like, this is Shakespeare, oh my God. <laughs> I could write like this. You're just yeah. such a smart and eloquent writer yeah, now. It's just like... So Alan Cumming, right, is the star of Alan Cumming is a star. Bojan Novakovic, who's Serbian and Australian. Daniel Ings, who's British. And Naveen Andrews, uh, who's also from... It's like everyone has an accent. Um, but only Naveen gets to use his accent. Um, but yeah, it's a fun cast. The, the example I would use is Jesse Plemons, who played Landry on Friday Night Lights. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right? I mean, when, when that show started, he was the lovable, goofy sidekick who wanted to start a Christian speed metal band. And then, then you would watch him come, the dailies would come, and you watch him, and then you're just like, this kid has something. So we started creating, I mean, we, we hooked wow. him up with Tyra. I mean, come on. It was like, we liked him so much. Um, so, yes, it absolutely makes a huge difference, I think. And, and I and think Friday Night, Night Lights, to me, it's a different, obviously different type of show from Veep. Um, but one of the things they both have in common is that I am excited to be with every character. And I think a lot of that is obviously the casting, a lot of that is the writing, but it's very rare when you have a show that has so many characters and you don't get to a B or C story and be like, oh, I can't wait for this to get over with. You're just excited to be with them. And I think you know, you guys did that so well on Friday Night Veep also, not a family show, well, I guess a little bit of a family show, and that's a great family dynamic with, with the mom and the daughter um, and, and the dad. I mean, you never see that, and it's so funny. But you, know, you just want to be with all these people. Do you guys actually, uh, your point, I always love these stories. Do you have a story of an actor who came on as a day player or just for one or two episodes that you ended up giving much more work to because you enjoyed the character and having that actor around so much? Yeah, I'll start. We had, um, there's a woman named Brooke Dorsey who um, we offered in the second episode of the second season, uh, it was going to be, we shot it in Puerto Rico, a two-parter, and we wanted to cast her and she wouldn't read. Um, and her agent said, you know, either you make the offer or forget it. We didn't talk to her, and, you know, I'd, she'd done a few things, and she was really talented, and so we didn't want that. We wanted to get someone that would read. We could see what they like. We got someone who read. She did a very nice job. There wasn't the chemistry, and then we had another... This was for uh, Mark Feuerstein's character to be a date, and then we had, a few episodes later, a three-episode arc for the brother, and this was someone who's actually uh, going to hire the brother to be her fake boyfriend and pay him. So it was the perfect thing. So we wanted Brooke, and we made the offer to Brooke. And by the end of the first episode, we realized that she was completely magic and fit so well in the show that this three-episode arc became 92 episodes of her. And she became a regular, and she became their story, which was this fake love story, became the love story of the entire series. And, you know, her... 
talent and her comedy and her her chops as an actress, it just fits so perfectly with the tone of the show. So, and that took us all by surprise, and it was all because of her. Well, Steve Sharippa, I'm thinking. Yeah. What did he do on Sopranos? Do you remember? He's Bobby Bacala. Bobby Bacala. And I think he was like a Las Vegas bouncer manager type. Anyway, he, was, he, he came to us and we, we put, put him in Sopranos. And now he's in Blue Bloods. We're not in the casting room at Blue Bloods anymore, but just watching the show as we still do, um, you see that it's, he's a perfect foil for uh, Bridget Moynihan, who didn't really have anybody to play off of, and he's such a big mook, and, she, and she's so like fine and everything. And so it just, it, it just brought her to life to have him around, and I can see, you know, I can see through the writer's room, I, I know what they're doing over there, and they're thinking, let's keep him around because it's somebody for her to play off of. Yeah. And I can say, uh, Drea De Matteo, uh, Adriana, was in the pilot, but never said a word, and then she came in to read, and she just knocked it out of the park, and, and was off to the she races. The uh, she made the word ow. You know, just in another example, I mean, loyalty and stuff like that, there was a, ca- a character first into Blue Bloods, Tom didn't have anybody to play off, and this young woman came in. Uh, as uh, named Baker, and she's now been in about 120 episodes. I mean, just changes. Uh, yeah, two, <laughs> just two I mean, yeah. well, I believe it is now time. I know everyone in this room has a question, so raise your hand. Don't be shy and ask our fabulous panel a question. I would like to know what everyone's interest in, you know, in, in this you. panel is. Do you know what I mean? Are you thinking of writing? Uh, family shows. <laughs> Do we have any writers in the house? I was, it, would, it's, it would certainly make you a good writer if you had that material to work from. Exactly. Oh, I see you right there. Blue shirt. Can everybody touch a little bit on what makes their um, family and their show relatable? Or that's the reason why they connect um, to audiences? They feel? Could you repeat the question? I... Uh, she would like everybody to address the question of why you think the shows that you worked on, the, the families are relatable to audiences. What is it about the families that is relatable? I mean, I think that in writers' rooms, I think everyone would agree, it's really important for writers to tell the truth about their own family, you know, to to overshare sometimes. And I think that as long as everyone in that room, or at least some people in that room, are contributing something that really happened to them or that really resonates with them, that passion is going to come through. And even if that family is nothing like your family, you're going to hear some kind of truth that you've heard either from your own family or from a friend. I think it's, it's, it's the truth that's behind it, as opposed to just a bunch of people sitting around being like, you know it would be great if it comes from a personal place. I think that's what makes it relatable. Um, I think for us it was kind of like what I hear, and, and, and I'll you know, use feedback to answer that question. Um, you know, With our show, we represent a family of color, um, and we always hear that there isn't really a, a good representation without it being so hyper real um, of who people are, um, particularly of color. And I think that we do kind of try to find that 
place of truth and trying to represent characters um, realistically uh, without a lens on it to say, you know, who they are or why they are um, and not justify it. Uh, the other thing is um, our show is set in rural Louisiana and, and, and we have farmers and it's like this, um, you know, when we went back the first season, you know, we're doing a, a small show and no one had knew anything about it uh, in the communities we were shooting in, which was all real communities in, you know, rural Louisiana. And when we come back in season two, everyone is excited to see us. And they're like, why didn't you ever introduce me to, you know, like one of our characters, Ralph Angel? He'd be like, he was here every day shooting, you know, but, but there was some truth in representing those lives, that lifestyle, that um, um, something that they felt like they know so well and they never see on television. Um, you know, we felt honored to be able to portray those, uh, you know, those you know, regular people. And if you're not watching Queen Sugar, you should be. The pace on that show is really interesting to me. Not only just that you are in a place that we don't see much on television, we're seeing people, really great characters. And it makes me think when you talk about the hyper-real thing, it's like Empire is a lot of fun, right? And I feel like there are a lot of people that watch that show and connect with that show on sort of a soap level. But this is a real show about, Queen Sugar is a real show about real people that is happening right now. Like you could meet these people on the street. And it's a, I'm just saying watch Queen Sugar, basically. But to your your question, I think one of the things that we always did that helps is in making families relatable is you get to create the mythology of the family. They have their own traditions. They have their own things that they do. You know, the Bravermans would have their family dinners. They would also, the siblings would come over and they'd do the dishes and they'd turn on the music and they'd dance. Um, in Friday Night Lights, we had, you know, they went to Applebee's all the time. You know, that was a, that was a product placement. But, but, uh, but, but the idea that you get to create the mythology of this family and, you know, you, you would hear from different writers the things they would do in their families and you'd sort of throw it in the blender and, and out came, you know, this is what the Taylors do on Thanksgiving, for example. That's a family I want to be part of. Yes, right back there in the white. Well, I, you know, I'll speak. I on a, the second season of a show um, started producing on a series called Underground, um, and it's a show about the Underground Railroad and, and slaves. And and there was, you know, this odd, you know, complex thing about what a family was because it was a blend of the slave master may have had a child with one of the slaves, and it, you know, it caused like these unbelievably complex. Um, emotions uh, for our characters and the writers to explore on how do we display what family even means uh, in you know a world where uh, the lines aren't very clear. I think family drama too is maybe one of those terms that has become such a wide net, sort of like YA. Um, that because I I think that like right now I'm working on a military drama for the CW, but we still always talk about family, even if those main characters are not related. I think when we start talking about the character arcs, 
we're like, well, what's their backstory with their parents and what's the deal with the sister? And that's what we set up first because when you're looking at these characters, you're really thinking about what shaped them. And so kind of every show is a family show in a weird way. Yeah, it's just not traditional definition of family. I mean, you know, on L.A. Law, those lawyers were family. You know, I felt like, I mean, Gil, those lawyers were family, so family can meet. It doesn't have to mean necessarily blood relationships, I don't think. I mean, the office, I mean, you can look at sitcoms, too. The, the, the office family, I mean, the football team was a family separate from the families on the show on Friday Night Lights, every show. And then, of course, the, the people who work on the shows become your family, too, right? Whether you want them to or not. <laughs> who else has got a question? Yes, right there. Yeah, I mean, look, writer's room chemistry is the same as actor chemistry. Um, and, you know, there is clearly a, uh, a goal to bring someone in to speak um, for particular characters, but I think also it's about putting a, the right group of people together to explore ideas, because uh, we don't start off knowing exactly what the show is going to be or where it's going to go. Uh, and that group, that, that you know, kind of small group of writers um, are tasked with exploring that. Um, so it's kind of both sides. You know, yes, we do try to find people with particular voices, but I think it's also the group effort um, it takes to get a series done. And then there was a question right next to you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Megan Rosen. I have a question for anyone that would like to answer, and it's uh, regarding table reads. So a lot of actors' um, technique, they prefer to read neutrally before they make choices about where they'd like to take the characters. Does that in any way negatively impact your ability to get a sense of group chemistry? I think... In- other shows probably do it differently, but the problem with table reads is that often the network or studio might be listening, and you as the writer, you know the actor you're writing for. You kind of know they're going to bring it on the day. It's more listening to the rhythm, and are they stumbling over that phrase or whatever. But the problem is that when executives are listening and the actor reads it neutrally, they'll say, like, well, is, is that going to be funny when they do that? Is that, is, is that bar going to be emotional? And you're like, yes, it's I think the writer usually believes in the actor because we know that the table read is just sort of to get through it, but it's it's a tough thing. Yeah, I, I've I, I always have table reads for every episode and close them. I haven't had a situation yet where the studio or network is asked to be there unless it's a pilot, where they always do. Um, and I don't know what I would do if they did because I asked the actors not to give 100% and not to worry about performance. They're not going to get notes, but that it's strictly for the writers to hear What's working? What's not working? Where does it get boring? Is it long? Did we miss something? Is something, you know, there that shouldn't be there? And it's, if someone's reading it really flat, it can be hard to to see it. So some actors love it and they have a fun time, and some kind of resent a little bit, but they'll do it. And uh, you know, as long as they understand that it's going to make the episode better, and it's going to make their lines better, and it's going to make their scenes better, for the most part, in my experience, they usually game to give you as much as you need. I think one of the added benefits, too, is a creative aside. Um, they can be morale building. 
because you know these actors are working. They're not. They're, a lot of them may not see each other during the week, and it's one, it's one time that the entire it's a family dinner comes together. It's a family dinner. It's a family lunch, and so they all come together, and you know that can be good and bad. But uh, but it's but it's you know it, it creates some sort of continuity, I think, with your with your cast. I feel like they're oh right in the front. Major couples, Deacon Camille, uh, Jasmine and Crosby, and Joel and Julia all have marital troubles throughout the run of the show. Was there ever a discussion in the writers' room to keep one of the couples just separated? They were done. There was no reconciliation. And exploring the family dynamic when that happened, since there were kids. In other words, to have somebody basically break up and not get back not together. Back together. There was discussion about that, um, a lot of discussion about that, and a lot of varied opinion on it. And I, as I recall, I think the ultimate conclusion was, let's make it a happy ending. You, you know, I, I mean, I guess, I, and a lot of that is from Jason Kadem's sensibility, too, because I think in his heart, he's a very optimistic, hopeful person. And so even if Joel and Julia were going to have trouble, you just wanted to root for them to get back together. Flipping that on the opposite, and I've said this before, so I apologize if you've heard it, but... One of the biggest challenges of Friday Night Lights was early on, um, Connie Britton and Kyle Chandler said to us, basically, don't mess, ever mess us up. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. I mean, we, you know, we'd, get, we'd get in the room, we pitched a story where Kyle was an alcoholic one year, or we pitched a story where they got a divorce, or one of them cheated, or whatever, and they very plainly said, we won't play it, we don't want to do it. Um, we think the strength of this marriage is the fact that they are, and that's hard to write, you know, because drama is conflict. Um, so, but, but I, I think it was smart on their part. And I was like, yes, yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Chandler. Good for that. Go right ahead. Um, since family dramas tend to be a genre that can bring in different generations that can like each find like somebody that they can relate to, does that get difficult to like find the right like storylines that, you know, are appropriate enough for children, but not like, um, things that uh, yeah, I can tell you that on Royal Pains, one of the big surprises, other than the fact that we were successful beginning, <laughs> was that uh, almost immediately what we kept hearing from on the street, for, like when I was with actors, was this is thank you for doing a show we can watch with our kids. Thank you for doing a show that our eight year old, whatever, can watch. And, and it became such a part of our audience that, it, that we in the writer's room stopped certain stories we were doing because we felt like, I mean, I also, I'm an optimist and I like to do shows that ultimately make you feel good. And Royal Pains was one of those shows that was very important to me that no matter what happened throughout the episode, I wanted to be buoyant in terms of tone, but it changed the nature of some of our storytelling when we discovered that it was a show that people watch with kids because we didn't want to do things that were going to either show them something they shouldn't be seeing, introduce them to something that they're too young to do, and make it not necessarily wholesome, but some in terms of our language, in terms of our content, something that we could not feel handcuffed creatively, but at the same time could continue to play to that type of audience. Here in the dark end of the spectrum. <laughs> I mean... Sopranos was toxic. Finally, it became very toxic. It, it was not. It couldn't. It wasn't a happy place. It, the, the family. It wasn't a, an uplifting show, shall we say? And so I think when we turned to Blue Bloods, finally, it was to try and. It was a healing gesture, <laughs> where we just wanted to create a hero instead of an anti-hero, um, and, and that was the effort. That was the intention behind it. 
You created multiple heroes too. I mean, almost everybody on that show. Well, was it's it, it it gave it it gave some sort of heroic yeah you know, theater for people to play. That's in. Right. Not every family drama is a family show. I mean, they're not on the same level. I know that. You know, I'm not, but 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 still, the, 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 there was that difference. I know there was another question. I feel like I saw a hand right there. Go right ahead. It's a question about point of view, that when you have a story, how do you choose which character that we are seeing that perspective from? Like, you have a story you want to tell, how do you decide which character, if I'm getting this right? It comes from that character. So it's not like you have a story that's separate from a character. I can't think of one. Well, I think, I think what you want to try to do is, even if you have a father and a son, and this is, to follow what you're saying, a father story, um, you know, where it's it's being told because of the father's job. That's where the story's beginning, and that's the first beat, and then it trickles out of the sun. You want to ultimately have it affect both characters so that at the end of the day, even if it's quote-unquote a father story, it's a son story too. And it's not you're not just developing one character throughout that story. You're finding a way that it's either changing or intentionally not changing both characters and their relationship and their dynamic. I didn't um, So that, you know, if it's a Tom Selleck story, and I never written a Tom Selleck story, but you know, but that's because he's the star of the show and that's what they want to see and Bridget Moynihan's in it too, you want to have it also be able to look at it as a Bridget Moynihan story because of her character being filtered through it. Yeah, it's I, I, story, really. Yeah. Uh, to, to your, uh, an example I'm thinking of is the Max Braverman story in Parenthood because telling the story of a child with autism and the challenges he faces or a child that's on the spectrum could have been, it could have just been a pure Max story, but I was always just as interested in how Max affected the family and the family dynamic, how they, even his aunts and uncles, how they dealt with him, but specifically Peter Krause and, and his parents. Um, so we often did stories that were, would be broken as a Max story, but the scenes would come from his parents and it was from their perspective. So I think that may get at what you're asking because there are several different ways to skin a cat when you're telling a story and it changes the way I think that the audience reacts to it. Is it about him re- reacting to Max or Max reacting to him or the world reacting to it? And before I let you all go, I have to know, if they made a show about your family, would it be a sitcom or a drama, and would you be the main character or a supporting character? You know, there was Ah Wilderness and um, Long Day's Journey, so I think, I think it would be both, either of those things would be fine. I'm concerned about your family. Depends on how you want to skew it, you know. Be a dark comedy, dark comedy cable. I'd be a supporting character. So you'd be a dramedy. Yeah. Who would be, the, be, a, be a dramedy. Who would be the star? Which member? My, of my mom. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it would be dark. Or what? It would be. It would be. It would be. It would be a little twisted. Maybe. A little twisted. I'm fine, you guys. I'm totally fine. <laughs> Uh, I think I'd be like, you know, one of those weird, like, half-hour single-camera comedies. Uh, I would definitely be supporting, and it'd be my 12-year-old girl who would be the star. (laughs) Mine would be like a dramatic all-in-the-family, and I would have dropped out of school in 10th grade. 
and then left town. Would be you. So you wouldn't even be on the show. <laughs> It'd just be about the rest of the family. Michael. Uh, my show is going to do a crossover with Paul's show because, <laughs> because my show would be all about my 12-year-old son, Henry, since that's what my family's about. Yes. Um, and I would be at most a recurring supporting <laughs> character who just gets abused throughout every episode but keeps coming back for more. Yeah. I think this show actually should happen. And Mr. Hedges? Um, I think mine would be a, a comedy half hour too but it would be called Outmanned and it would be the story of my wife because I have four boys and uh, the only, we don't even I think even our dog, and no, our dog's a girl but um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so she's she's uh, she's outmanned in our household, and I, she would be the star for sure. I would watch Megan's show. I would show. too. Let's do it. I would it. totally that watch that. Good. All right, well, I want all of these shows. Well, thank you all so much for being here, and thank you all so much. Thank for you. Being thank here. you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your ATX. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 